Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a, an incredible founder, you know, founder, also investor, but he definitely identifies himself as being on the entrepreneur's side of the table. But without further ado, I mean, today, really, we're going to be learning a lot about building, financing, exiting, investing, pattern recognition. We're going to be talking about basically why companies die. We're going to be talking about why nothing is as good or as, or as bad as it appears, or basically why you shouldn't look at valuation as a measure of success amongst many, many things. So again, let's welcome our guest today, Sanjay Swami. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Thanks for having me here. So originally from India, you grew up there. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Yeah, well, I'm relatively old, but uh, grew up in India in the 70s and 80s. Uh, did my undergrad here in Bangalore. Um, very exciting time. Um, very chilled out place. Now I'm back here after 25 years uh, and it is a very different bustling metropolis today. But um, India was a fairly, you know, I would say simple place to be uh, earlier on. Uh, Bangalore happens to be a city with great weather and uh, uh, which is why a lot of the uh, influx has happened in the city over the years. I did my undergrad, went to France for a couple of years, then to the U.S. for um, 16 years, actually, um, and then came back to India in 2003. And I've been here for the last 20 years. So that's a very quick snapshot. And that's a really quick snapshot. I just want to now do a little of a zoom in, you know, in that snapshot, you know, Eventually, as you were saying, you went to France. There you studied, I believe it was avionics and control systems engineering. I mean, that was your first master's. Uh, and then you decided to come to the U.S. and do another master's degree in aeronautics and flight control systems. Why two masters? I mean, one master seems like enough. So why two masters? Yeah, well, I was actually planning to do a PhD or aiming to do a PhD. Um, wasn't successful in the attempt and uh, then decided to just do another master's and start working. I realized over that period of time that I am much more of a people person and not so much of a researcher myself. And so as a part of that, I sort of decided to get a master's and work in the industry. Uh, and I always worked in sales, marketing, business dev roles in technology companies. So even there was much more of a people-related role than, um, uh, I would say, a product development role. Yeah, because you were you studied obviously the engineering, you know, side of things, and then you know it was a marketing. What really got you going? So what got you, you know, so um, interested in marketing? I think I enjoyed applications of technology. Right. And and to this day, even as a venture capitalist, I don't think my work has changed at all. Right. I look at how technology can solve big problems. Uh, and I like to understand those. I like to explain those to people. I like to see how it can disrupt, you know, uh, big problems with, uh, you know, through technology. And today my role is finding people that are trying to do that and backing them. But earlier I used to be in sales and marketing where I was also still 
taking these amazing technology solutions that we built in the software world and selling it to people in the automotive industry, selling it to people in the um, aerospace industry. And as you know, today, all of these are flying computers, right? And I was at the early days of those uh, uh, developments. I wouldn't call them inventions. But that was a transition of something that was very mechanical becoming much more of a software uh, device, right? And today, if you look at a Tesla, it's a mobile computer, what we call it, right? So um, I was always fascinated by how software technology or, you know, software plus some hardware device, uh, IoT sensors, could transform something which was a, uh, whether it was a business process or a machine or a device. And in the early days, my role was always evangelizing such uh, things. You know, so marketing is probably a um, sort of a broad term, but it was really more evangelization of new concepts. And today, as a venture capitalist, you know, in between, of course, I was an entrepreneur as well. But I was always doing the same thing of saying, taking something disruptive and evangelizing it into the world. So eventually you moved back to India back in 2003, but mm -hmm. 11 years in Silicon Valley is many, many years. So mm -hmm. what, were, what were some of the biggest lessons that you got from the culture, the mindset, you know, the way of building and scaling companies over the course of those uh, 11 years? If you had to maybe like capture them into three, what would you say were the three things that you took away with you? Yeah. So first of all, the, the timing of that was 92 to 2003, right? So it was during the dot-com boom era, right? Um, so the first thing was nothing is impossible, right? You just have to dream it and it might be possible, right? And the probability of success is very low, but the outcomes that you can have are ginormous, right? So in some ways, what you are risking, and this is very true in venture capital, you're risking 1x of whatever you invest and your opportunity cost, but your upside is unlimited, right? So that was one big lesson uh, I think I, I learned in the Valley. Uh, certainly a few other things in terms of uh, culture, you know, the way startups are built, uh, you're really looking to get the best person to do a particular activity or a task. and egos and things like that completely go out the door. So you could have employees on your team whose salaries might be much more than yours because they're just more senior experienced people, but they are the best at what they do rather than sort of where the large companies are built with more of a factory model and with a hierarchical model, etc. And so when you have these small teams, um, you know, you get extraordinary, um, uh, you know, outcomes possible. Right, although the probability is very low. Right? And I think the third thing was that um, large companies will always talk about innovation, 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 but all the innovation comes from small companies. Right? Slightly untrue today if you look at what's happening with AI, but I would still deem you know Google and Meta and all of these companies as very they're founder-led companies, right? And when you have founder-led companies, these magical things can happen. So those were, I would say, the three big learnings. When you moved to India, you helped companies setting up their operations, and then eventually you went into the venture world. So tell us about the first rodeo, becoming an entrepreneur. Yes, yes. So I went to the venture world by becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, and the first company was 
a mobile payments company that uh, I was actually brought in as the founding CEO when the company was being formed. Uh, it was a company attempting to do something like Apple Pay on the SIM card. This is way before uh, uh, Apple Pay itself. And, uh, of course, it was a big ecosystem player to work with telecom operators on the one side, with banks on the other side, the regulators, and was way too early, 2006, before the smartphone era, etc. And while we made some decent success there, you know, it was just too big a, a problem to solve. And perhaps as an entrepreneur, I also screwed up a fair bit. Um, but eventually, after, you know, four years, it was clear that we were probably too early. We were on the bleeding edge and not on the leading edge. And, you know, it was going to be a few more years before mobile payments was going to become mainstream in India. But that was the sort of opportunity that uh, I was aiming to. So today, if I look at it, India is doing 10.8 billion mobile payment transactions a month. Uh, and I was, you know, five years too early to the party, right? But as entrepreneurs, you have to see the future and you have to hope that your timing is right. You can never time the market. And, you know, it's only hindsight that tells you whether you were right or wrong. So that was a four-year stint. One of the big things that I struggled with was helping our customers to open a bank account, which was a big problem at the time in India because it was a very paper-driven process. And I was fortunate to do, see a, a government initiative to launch a national ID program, which would make all of these things real-time and, and uh, online. And so I joined the program as a full-time volunteer working for the government um, about six months before the first ID was issued. As it uh, stands today, you know, 10 years later, this has become the foundation for everything digital in India. It's called Aadhaar, uh, which, uh, which stands in Sanskrit for foundation. And it's the world's largest biometric ID program. We have about 1.3 billion users who have been enrolled into the system, complete with 10 fingerprints, two iris scans, photograph, everything done through the government system. And uh, today, that becomes the foundation for opening a bank account instantaneously, opening, uh, getting a telecom connection, getting an insurance policy, opening uh, a trading account. All this is done digitally uh, through this program, right? So it's had massive impact. And I was very privileged to be a part of the core team that worked pro bono, but I would say was probably the most enriching experience in my life. Um, in parallel, I had started working with a couple of entrepreneurs on two startup opportunities. One was a company called ZipDial. Uh, if you're familiar with what a missed call is, where you dial somebody and they don't pick up, we turned that into a consumer to business experience where you could call a business instead of sending a text message. And the call would disconnect, but the business would then you know, send you back a, a response. right? So you could dial a number for your bank balance and a text message would come back to you with and you would save in india the cost was 3 rupees which is like maybe uh, 7 cents i would say uh, in dollars and you know consumers we suddenly made it toll free uh, so that company actually did pretty well eventually had raised about a couple of million dollars of uh, funding across various rounds sold to twitter for about 35 million dollars after 4 years uh, it was a good outcome for us as well as for all the investors everybody made money uh, in parallel, I had started a second company called EasyTap, which was, uh, think of it as Square for India, but was much more enterprise-focused. That recently sold for about 150 to 180 million to uh, Razorpay. Um, and that also was, was a good, solid outcome for everyone. Took a little longer than we would have liked, but uh, was a great uh, uh, outcome in the end. 
And uh, then I started a VC fund. So that's been my journey so far. And before we go into the VC fund, because I want to I wanna dig deep into that, um, on both companies, on EasyTap as well as on ZipDial, your role there was co-founder and chairman. So correct. how how did you initially get involved with those companies? Because, I mean, the, the, the role seemed, you know, the exact same on both companies. You know, typically you would see more like the co-founder and operator versus, you know, co-founder and chairman, which is obviously more at a strategic level providing guidance versus like being on the day-to-day, you know, operator side. So how did you land, you know, those two roles? And because they were also roles that happened, you know, in parallel at the same time, one with the, what, one with the other, no? Actually, uh, ZipDial was in a four-bedroom house and the fourth bedroom was easy tap. So <laughs> it was a... But I was actually the idea guy behind this and I put a lot of my personal money up front in the beginning. I found, I brought the founders together, the other two founders were the operating founders and I was actually a co-founder in these companies. I would argue that uh, more of the founder in the early days and the head of the product strategy and everything. Uh, but I had very clearly right from the beginning, whether it was Valerie and Amiya at ZipDial or whether it was uh, Bobby and Bhakta with the other two co-founders at EasyTap, uh, very clear with them that I had no, no intention of ever being in an operating role in the company. I never took a salary in the companies. I, in fact, had put in personal money into the companies. And uh, in, in, in all of these, we were sort of, uh, I was a non-operating founder for the early years, I would say the first three to four years. And after that, it became when other investors came in and stuff like that, it became much more of a, a board member, but as it turned out in Zipta, in EasyTap's case, when you know the the CEO left and the new CEO came in, he was you know four houses away from me. So we would go out for an evening walk and 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 keep talking product and you know board related matters even outside of the formal board meeting. Right. So what I like in my role, and I said coming back to what I started in '92 with my first job and getting into marketing. I was always sort of a pseudo marketing guy in all of these companies. Um, obviously, uh, I you know I would say till EasyTap was sold, I used to actually sometimes sit down in the product review with the with the product team and and help them. But I always had a boundary, right, which said, "Look, I am never making decisions in this company, right." So I would I always tell founders, you know, I will disagree, disapprove, dispute, discuss, debate, but I will never decide. That it's your company. Ultimately, you have to make the decisions. And that's the boundary that I had always with the operating team, right? That I would never make a decision. Um, but I will certainly be as actively involved. And over a period of time, companies get bigger, the team gets formed, and I have less of contribution on the tactical stuff. But there's always strategic stuff that uh, when you have context and you have so much love for the company, you know, you can, you can be woken up at any time of the night and you have, you know, uh, you don't have a 10,000-foot view. You have a 1,000-foot view where the founder is at a important view. So that was the, the role there. And I would say in our VC fund also, it's not as close, but we are still one of the VCs that, as a team, works very closely with our founders. Right? And we like to have more context on the company so we can give quality inputs to the founders rather than just looking at the financial metrics. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. 
And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then let me ask you about that. I mean, obviously you were more coming from the operator side, you know, the founder side, you've been an entrepreneur. So why did you decide to, you know, go into the other side of the table as an investor and how did that come together to form Prime? So uh, I have two partners at Prime, Sripati and uh, Amit, uh, who joined us in Fund 2, and we had another partner in Fund 1. Um, so our uh, all three of us had worked together on the National ID program as volunteers. My partner, Sripati, and, and the other partner were both co-founders at Snapfish in the U.S., had worked in Silicon Valley, very similar backgrounds. Uh, and we felt that India was going to go through a massive boom in the digital ecosystem and, uh, you know, smartphone penetration, internet penetration, and a lot of things that we saw happen in the Valley in the 90s was going to happen in India. And we had all also seen the National ID program and the early digital startups in India. And we felt there was going to be a spectacular opportunity over the next 10, 15 years. And it has largely played out that way. And... Uh, but, you know, being an entrepreneur is very challenging, very lonely. It's very difficult to be. I mean, I have deep respect for the founders. And we felt that our value add of having Silicon Valley experience, having firsthand experience in India, having understood this whole digital infrastructure, um, the best thing we could do was actually to work with multiple startups at the same time. And what we have also found is seed stage or very early stage of a company is when just as they say, you know, for for human beings as well, right? The zero to five years or the zero to 10 years are the most critical years. And things done there will have long-term impact. It's true with startups as well, right? You can, you know, point uh, the arrow a, a little bit to the left or the right, and that would make the difference between a mega outcome and, uh, and a damp squib. And we felt, look, we are product guys, we are operators, we have first-hand experience. Um, if we had a checkbook, you know, we could really work very well with companies. And so that's how we formed our fund. Uh, and our fund has always been uh, an operator mindset-based uh, fund. Uh, now, it isn't a very scalable model. We still do only four to five deals a year, even though our new fund is pretty large. Uh, because we want to spend time with all the founders, right? And 
Our third partner, Ramit, also is a great product guy, you know, and one of the best in India. And so we have a very unique model where all partners work with all the companies, though I might be the lead on this company, Dozy, for example. If he wants to know something about org building, he'll go talk to my partner, Amit, because he is much better than me when it comes to org building. I've never done that in my life. So we have got a, a model working, which works very well for um, early stage startups. And uh, we have stuck with that from the beginning. Um, and we're now investing out of our fourth fund. It's been quite an amazing journey. We'll get into more details later. But our model is being as close to being operators without actually having the the role and responsibility of being operators. And we find that to be very win-win with founders. So right now for Prime, I mean, you guys have 350 million uh, under management, 45 investments that you've done around eight exits. So, I mean, pretty, pretty amazing experience. So I guess the, uh, the question here that comes to mind is, I've heard you say that good companies don't die of starvation. They die of indigestion. And I guess, you know, in this, in this macro environment that we're in right now, you know, we're coming from this crazy environment where people were throwing money at anything. And now money, you know, has seemed to dry up a little bit more with, with, with what's going on in the economy. But what do you mean with this? Yeah, so... In the past three months, we've had three of our companies get three term sheets, right? Um, and this is at a time where people are complaining that there is no money available for, you know, late stage companies as well, right? Uh, that to me is an example of, now of course, the valuation might have been very different in 2021 to what it is today. But for founders who are building a business, they want to make sure they're adequately capitalized so that they can build their companies in a you know, this whole business is a marathon, right? This is not a sprint, right? I think 2021 was an aberration. It will never happen again. In hindsight, it looks like it was a mistake that it happened for, for many companies. And unfortunately, many companies have put themselves in a situation where their valuation is so high uh, compared to where they are on the revenue curve, on the other metrics curve, that you know, they really should be worth maybe in some cases as low as 10% and probably most likely about 40, 60% of what they are worth, uh, what their valuation said. And it puts the founder in a very difficult situation because now they cannot suck it up and say, look, I need to do a down round. And yet at the same time, um, that is the reality of the new market, new world, right? So some companies have the money to grow into the valuation, but most companies are actually going to struggle to justify that valuation, right? Uh, we were actually quite fortunate that in that year, for some reason, most of our companies did not go out and fundraise. And so uh, they have managed to raise subsequently. And now when you're raising, it's you're raising in a tough market, but good companies are able to raise, right? So that's my point about good companies not dying of starvation. But if you look at what was happening in 2020, 2021, where people were getting $50, $100 million rounds, they blew a lot of this money on Google and Facebook marketing. They hired executives and paid them in obnoxious salaries. And today they can't hold on to their team anymore because they're running out of money and there is no money to keep up at that pace, right? So I think they've run into a bit of an indigestion problem and they all have to clean up before they can make forward progress, right? And part of that indigestion is actually uh, restructuring, recapitalizing the company, getting back from Unicorn to probably a $200 million valuation, which might also be excessive. Uh, so this is the indigestion problem that they're all going through right now. 
some have done a good job of it. Some, you know, were actually deserving, maybe just got a little bit of a premium and have grown into the valuation. But that's probably 30% of the companies. The other 70% are still struggling, right? Um, and I'm thankful in some ways that we don't have companies in that board. Most of our companies are in the board where they're raising now, but they're solid companies and they're able to raise uh, at good rounds. So I think for entrepreneurs, you know, I'm not saying that we should not raise in such terms, but you shouldn't get ahead of yourself. But just because somebody gave you a valuation doesn't mean that's what the value is. And there's a fundamental difference between valuation and value. And this was the other point you made earlier. Good companies, you know, nothing is as good as it appears. Nothing is as bad as it appears. I think we sometimes, whenever good things happen, we like to take the credit for it. When bad things happen, we like to blame somebody else or some other market situation for it. The reality is it's neither. And I think founders should stay grounded. When good things are happening, we should be grateful, but continue, um, you know, without too much of emotional uh, jubilation. When bad things are happening, we shouldn't get emotionally down because that's also temporal. It will go away with time. Right? So that's the long answer to your question. And I love that, that it will go away. You know, every day is a new day, especially for founders. So so when you're talking about valuation there, if you're not using valuation as a measure of success or failure, what do you use? So to me, and I'll, I'll calibrate this for the Indian market. Now, for other geographies, it might have to be thrown. I look at a goalpost for a company to say, what will it take to get to $100 million of revenue, to get to, say, 30% EBITDA, right, and maybe a 30% year-on-year growth, right? A company like that that is spitting out $30 million of cash every year in profits is probably worth a unicorn, right, in the public markets, right? Now, whether you choose to go public, whether you want to be private, etc., those are sort of metrics that we can... Um, we can say justifies a unicorn valuation. Now, unicorn might be 700 million, might be 1.5 billion, but it's in that zone, right? So then we look and say, okay, when we are coming into a company, what, how much of capital will it take to get to that? Can it even get to that in the first place, right? So this is where we all look at the, you know, Tam, Sam, Som, all of these equations that people have got. But ultimately, if you can't get an opportunity to get a billion dollars of revenue, then it's not worth venture capital, you can still build the company, but don't take external capital. Um, then the question is, how much money will it take, right? Obviously, if you're spending a billion dollars to get to 100 million in revenue, that doesn't make any sense. But if you're spending 25, maybe 40 million in revenue to get to 100 million in revenue with this profitability and growth, it might still be a very attractive uh, opportunity. And so that's what we sort of look at, right? Can you get, what does it take? And, and remember, we invest in companies when they have sub $50,000 of revenue. So we're making a huge bet in our hypothesis saying, okay, this is how the world is going to evolve over the next five years. This is how these founders are going to be able to evolve and grow into their functions. This is how the technology stack is going to change. And of course, with AI, it's changing so fast that we all have to be sort of a little bit of a guessing game. Um, but I think we look at founders and say, can these people cope with the change? Can they be ahead of the change, right? And do they really understand the, mar the market, right? Do they, I mean, have they worked in the industry? Do they have empathy for the customers? Can they build an organization? These are all factors that we have to make a judgment call on. And of course, the more data there is, the happier we are. Um, but I think for us, we look at these steps and say, can these people go through the gears, right? 
Now, not everybody will, but we're making a judgment call. And in venture capital, we have the luxury of, we have to be right three times out of 10, right, as a VC, right? But as an entrepreneur, to me, I worry about those other seven founders, and I want to make sure that they all get something, right? So we also look at how the companies are going, and most VCs will say, if you're right three times out of 10, who cares about the rest? But that's the investor mindset. The founder mindset is I'm in the other seven companies. I'm going to slog for seven years. I can't get zero out of it, right? So that is sort of where the empathy for a founder comes in. And we look at that and say, okay, if things don't work out, what is the safe landing for this company, right? So Zibdial, for example, was, you know, could have been a very large company, but we all got something meaningful out of it, right? And, and, and so to me, that is like a plan B that we look for. Though we play for plan A, at some point you realize that plan A is not happening in this case and at least the founder should get something decent out of it. It won't have any material impact to us as the VC, but it'll be life-changing for the founders, right? So that's sort of how we look at things. I love it. So... If I could bring you back in time, and let's say I bring you back in time to that moment where you were thinking about starting your, your first company, mobile payments, right? And you have the opportunity of giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? So I think it would be that when you have seen the future, stick with it, right? Uh, you may have been too early, right? And that's where I feel I was at the bleeding edge. But I was absolutely right. I used to always tell people, 10 years from now, how do you think we will all be transacting? Of course, it's going to be on mobile phones, right? And I was right. We were all transacting on mobile phones, but I was maybe 10 years too early, right? And um, I have no regrets because I learned a lot and that was the foundation for my uh, VC fund and we are doing very, very well. But many founders, I know, give up and just go take a job. And then I became another different type of entrepreneur, right? And I always say, look, if you know that what you're doing is going to happen and it's a matter of time, right, then you should stick with it. If you think something's going to happen in the next three years and it doesn't happen for you and somebody else steals the opportunity, then that's fine. Then you can you know, do a complete reset in life. But if, if nobody has taken that opportunity and you are still convinced that that's where the opportunity is, you have to figure out a way to keep going, right? And that's, I think, the one takeaway that I would give myself. You know, which I, of course, didn't have. I thought that, um, you know, when, the, when it didn't happen, it was not going to happen. So I always tell founders, just make sure that you're not giving up too early. Right? Now, it's, of course, very difficult because sometimes you're giving up too late and you're burnt out. And so, so sometimes, so the flip side of that, and it's not black and white, right? This is the challenge in this whole thing for founders is... You know, you, you stick with it, you stick with it, you stick with it. And finally, when you give up, you're so burnt out that you don't have the energy to do one more startup. And that's unfortunate. So that's where I think we had one situation where it was cleared, pandemic hit, company was not going anywhere. A founder could have raised a Series B and stayed in business, but I actually spoke to the founder and said, look, you have something good. There is value here. You can get an exit. It'll be meaningful for you. It is not meaningful for us. But I think it's the right thing to do. You're 27 years old. You're going to make a few million dollars. You're going to be 30 years old after you've done your three years with the buyer. You can do another startup at that time, right? And uh, he took my advice. And I think uh, we're all happy that that was the right thing that happened. We, of course, got a small return on our investment. But for three 27-year-olds to make you know a few million dollars is not a bad thing. Um, and I think uh, that's always the tra trade-off for founders. Do I give up too early or do I pivot and, and all these things? But 
But I think when the macro thing you're solving is definitely going to happen and you're ahead of the game, I would say stay the course. So for the founders that are listening right now and that uh, would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? My Twitter DM is open, the Swami, T-H-E-S-W-A-M-Y. And I respond to anything that I find uh, is uh, related to entrepreneurship. People do spam me with a lot of other junk. But if it is anything from a founder or anything to entrepreneurship, I would be delighted to respond. Amazing. So, Sanjay, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been such an honor to have you with us. And I'm sure that you've been able to inspire many of the founders that are listening. So thank you so much, Sanjay, for being with us today. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. It's been a great pleasure for me, too. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.